welcome to a special edition of our show, Herstory. On the Rocks! With Katie. And Allie. Normally we'd be hanging out, just the two of us, with a couple of cocktails talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about famous women or famous people in history. Yeah. We have a very special guest here with us today, Joanne Paul. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's so brilliant to be here. We're so excited. Joanne is a senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Sussex. Her research focuses on the intellectual and cultural history of the Renaissance and early modern periods. She's here with us today to talk about her first book, The House of Dudley, A New History of the Tudor Era. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, um, you covered a lot of it. <laughs> I'm, I'm a historian. I work um, primarily on Renaissance and early modern periods in England, which usually means the Tudors and the Stuarts. Um, I'm Canadian originally, um, but I now live in the UK, so my accent's a bit all over the place. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been in the UK for about 10 years now. Uh, and I recently actually uh, left full-time employment at the University of Sussex in order to pursue being a writer. Oh, oh perfect. so exciting. Well, what a great start. I mean, the book is incredible. It's so good. The cover is gorgeous, by the way. I absolutely loved it. <laughs> yeah, they did an amazing job. Both the UK and the North American covers are just spectacular. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. Well, before we get into it, let's get into the cocktail we made for your book. So this is called House of Dudley. So I wanted to be kind of red, like the Tudor Rose, and I wanted it to be very british feeling. So it is gin, gin obviously. <laughs> gin, uh, pims, lemon juice, strawberry liqueur, and you shake that all up and garnish it with a lemon. So cheers. Cheers. Amazing. And you're sending one over to me, yeah? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's in the mail. <laughs> yeah, thank you. So before we dive into your book, we always like to set the scene for our listeners so they know kind of what era that they're falling into. Your book focuses on the Dudley family in the Tudor era. What is life like for people and specifically for women in this time period? Oh, great question. Um, I mean, it's really um, a period of of transition, of change. Um, It sits very much between what we think of as the medieval period and the early modern period. Um, And so we get real moments of, of dramatic and dynamic shift in this period. So things like the Renaissance, the Reformation, uh, eventually in the next century, you get into the English Civil War, right? So these really, really seismic changes in everyday life. Um, and really, I guess the, the foundations of people's lives, um, things like religion, like who's the monarch, like um, what culture is going on around them, right? Really, really, uh, and that's why I love this period is, is because it's such a rich moment. Um, and I think a lot happens that sort of sets the stage for the world we live in today, but also a lot gets left behind that that doesn't make it to today. And that's that's why I find it, I think, so fascinating. In terms of women, they're also at a moment of real change, um, not always for the best. <laughs> um, uh, there's there's uh, been a lot of work done on uh, did women have a renaissance? Um, the Renaissance is seen as this great leap forward for mankind, <laughs> but was it an advancement for women? And I think in some ways uh, it might have been. We can think of many women who were participants in the Renaissance, 
Uh, but with the Renaissance also, and with this period also comes uh, greater administration, bureaucracy, all of these things that force women out of those powerful informal roles that they'd had before. Uh, so whereas before, uh, if uh, a man died, his wife might take over his business and, and all of that, that starts to become looked down upon and women get forced into more domestic roles. Um, and we can see the same happening in politics where a queen might be a great advisor to their king, that starts to become criticized. And so women are starting to become pushed out of these spheres as these spheres become more regulated and concrete. Um, and, you know, we can start to look ahead to 17th and 18th centuries where, you know, angel of the hearth <laughs> becomes this, this role for women. And so they're in this transition period um, that isn't always to their benefit. Mm -hmm. And so the Dudley family is described as always being at the right hand of the monarch. And I know this is a very broad question. I mean, the whole book is about this, but mm -hmm. who was this family and where did they come from? Because I had never heard of them and they sound very important. <laughs> well, this is the amazing thing is, is I think a lot of people, if they've heard of one or two of them, they, they haven't heard of the family, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's not like those those big families, like maybe the Howards or the Boleyns, where you're like, oh, okay, you know, I, I, I understand them as a family unit. In fact, I think a lot of people might not have realized that, you know, Edmund Dudley, for instance, who becomes this money collector for Henry VII and rises very swiftly and then is executed very swiftly, is the grandfather of Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester who is uh, supposed to have been maybe the lover of the Virgin Queen, right? And, and, and then you have the Duke of Northumberland sitting in between them, um, who is accused of manipulating Lady Jane Grey, the Nine Days Queen, into her position. But of course, also Lady Jane Grey is in fact Lady Jane Dudley. And, and so I think people are all aware of, of these individuals. If, if, if they're engaged in the Tudor period, but maybe not connecting them. And then more importantly, um, for, for our purposes, they probably don't know about the women in the family <laughs> um, because they don't get really any attention or screen time um, when we do see the male members of the family. Mm. So let's talk a little bit more about Lady Jane Grey. We have done an episode on both Mary and Elizabeth. So she came up in both of those stories, obviously. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Lady Jane Grey as a part of this family? Yeah, so Lady Jane Grey, or as I say, really, by the time she becomes important to history, she's Lady Jane Dudley, uh, marries the son, a very younger son of John Dudley, who under Edward VI becomes Duke of Northumberland. And by the time we get to the end of the reign of Edward VI, John Dudley is essentially the most powerful man in the kingdom. Um, maybe not even accepting the king, because um, the king is still young, so he's not ruling in his own right quite yet. Really, John Dudley is running things. So he's a king in all but name. And when Edward VI uh, starts getting ill, and it appears it might be his last illness, uh, he changes the succession. He changes his father's will so that instead of coming to the throne after him, his half-sister Mary 
he decides that it's going to go to his cousin, Lady Jane Grey, who about the same time has become Lady Jane Dudley. And so it's a coup. It, it is it is a coup. Um, it's briefly a successful one. Uh, she does become Queen of England. Um, and John Dudley, her father-in-law, is usually seen as the one who's orchestrating all of this. Now, it seems to me that, like, sometimes the women are used as pawns in this, uh, you know, kind of political game. Were there women, though, that were behind the scenes pulling strings that maybe we uh, don't notice as much? <laughs> Absolutely. I, I mean, even if we take Lady Jane Grey Dudley, um, she's usually presented, as you say, as this pawn, as this passive victim. Was she? Was she not? I don't know. Um, the sources don't actually tell us conclusively that she was just being pushed around. That's kind of how she presents herself later on when she's imprisoned in the tower. But she would <laughs> at that point. That would be a clever way to present herself once she's been captured. So I don't know. Passive victim, political mastermind, somewhere in between. Uh, but I mean, most of the women of the Dudley family are absolutely running things behind the scenes. One of the things I found when I was writing this book was that every time the Dudley family falls, and they do repeatedly, <laughs> um, it's part of what makes it so fun, it's the women of the family who pick up the pieces, and it's thanks to them that the family is able to rise again. So if we take, um, in the first generation, the wife of Edmund Dudley, um, a woman named Elizabeth Gray Dudley, uh, after Edmund is executed, just over a year later, all of a sudden, she's married to the uncle of the king. Um, we don't know how uh, she managed to do this. Uh, he's an illegitimate uncle, but he helps raise the young Prince Henry. So he's hugely influential. And she's married to him within a year of her husband being executed for treason. How this happens, who knows, but it secures her son's future. Mm -hmm. And the same thing happens a generation later when John Dudley is executed. His wife is absolutely pivotal in securing her son's future. Um, she is petitioning the queen. She's bribing members of the court. She's making connections. She's an absolute political operator, um, really impressive. And her daughter, Mary Sidney, Mary Dudley Sidney, uh, also pops up in the Elizabethan court, meeting with ambassadors and telling them all sorts of tall tales and manipulating them. So it's, it's, they're absolutely part of it. You just have to dig a little deeper in the sources to find them. And is the goal of this family the crown or are they just trying to marry as close to the Tudors as possible? That's the big question. <laughs> it's really hard to tell. I, I think the impression I got after spending five plus years with them and reading all of their letters and observing everything they did and trying to get at the heart of the question of their motivations, I really think they were trying to serve the monarch, <laughs> um, even though it, sometimes it feels like they were trying to overthrow them. Uh, but they were also ambitious. Uh, there's there's no question about that. So I think that they were trying to preserve themselves by rising as high as they could, kind of not realizing that the higher they rose, the harder the fall. Mm. Um, 
but they they really were dedicated to to serving their monarch um it just so happened that in doing so like let's take the example of lady jane gray dudley again it's a coup right they they do overthrow mary the first but they do so because edward the sixth at least it looks like asked them to um and they 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 go out to the battlefield there is no actual battle but to take on mary the first in order to serve queen jane right so there is a way of thinking about this where where they are just trying to to serve the monarch to protect their country in the, in the best way they can see how uh it just doesn't always <laughs> work out in a way that looks like they, they are serving the monarch and they end up in every generation um being accused of and some of them executed for treason <laughs> it kind of seems to me that um this family would maybe be sorted into the Slytherin house. If we were to bring <laughs> Harry Potter into this, they'd be kind of a Slytherin legacy family. <laughs> I mean, they're cunning, they're kind of ruthless, they're ambitious. What were some of the tactics that they used over the years and maybe some that really stood out to you? It's like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe they did that. <laughs> oh, wow. What an interesting, yeah, there's, there's so much to draw on. I mean, I think in each generation I, I always i always feel like i'm starting an episode of buffy the vampire star in every generation a dudley is born um, in each in each generation i think they adopt a sort of very different set of tactics and that's one of the benefits i think of of studying this family over three generations is you can see this sort of intergenerational wisdom and experience being passed on um, in the first generation, Edmund Dudley and his wife, Elizabeth, Edmund Dudley does not make friends and he makes a lot of enemies. Um, he is not very sort of strategic. He's not very crafty. He's, he's not thinking about the long game. You can, you can see that he's very sort of black and white. Serve the king. Do what the king says. And everybody else can, you know, rude things. <laughs> um, uh, so, you know, he's, he's not really, um, playing the game or he's, he's, I don't think he's interested in the game. I don't even know that he knows that there's a game going on. <laughs> um, he's just focused on executing the king's will. And obviously that doesn't work. The moment the king dies, he's exposed. It, it, that's, that's all he had going for him. In the next generation, um, we can see that there's some learning <laughs> going on. Um, John Dudley uh, is is much better at making friends. Um, he makes some very, very good friends, including Edward Seymour, um, who ends up being um, the uncle to Edward VI. Um, and he is is better at figuring out how to play his enemies. He's also someone who uses uh, his sort of brute force a little bit more. So, for instance, when Edward Seymour, his friend, um, he participates in a plot to overthrow him because um, he's Lord Protector. He's crap at it. Um, and so John Dudley allies with his former enemies to help overthrow Edward Seymour, um, but then ends up in a position where they want to have Edward Seymour executed. And so apparently this comes up in a Privy Council meeting and he puts his hands on the hilt of his sword and says, he that would have his blood would have mine also. 
and everyone just falls silent. Yeah. And that, that, that ends the conversation because he's, he's threatening physically. Mm-hmm. Um, but he's also someone who's very strategic in his children's marriages, as we see um, with, with Jane Grey. Uh, and ultimately, it ends up being the fact that he too often forgives people. Um, he's actually not ruthless enough in some ways. So Edward Seymour, again, he defends him, doesn't have him executed. Well, Seymour then maybe plots to kill him. Um, and so he has to have him executed. And that makes him very unpopular because he had taken the time to sort of rehabilitate him first. And and various other of his enemies, he imprisons them, finds the heck out of them, and then lets them loose again, <laughs> um, which just makes them angrier. And so they all turn on him. And so he's starting to figure it out, but but not quite there. It's his son, Robert, who, Robert Dudley, who becomes Earl of Leicester, who I think really has it figured out um, to the point where as a historian, you really don't know what he's up to um, because the layers of rumor are just so thick and he's he's manipulating everybody around him. As a historian, you end up being manipulated as well. Um, and he's he's using charm. Um, this this little seed of charm that has been growing through the generations um, becomes sort of fully um, manifest in, in Robert Dudley. He is pure charm and possibly charms his way into the queen's bed. Sure. So did you, while you're writing, obviously you said this is like a five-year period and you're in the UK. Did you go about and like sit in the Tower of London just to write some chapters about people being imprisoned and then executed? Were you, like, What places did you visit to get a feel for this family? So for the first half of the book, I did my best to go to places. Um, so for instance, um, the, the book opens uh, at, at Tordington Church, which is actually just a 20 minute drive from me. Um, I, I couldn't, I didn't have my license at the time. I, I've gotten it more recently, but I made my husband drive me to this church. You have to like literally go through a farm. We had to ask some guy where it was. It, it was crazy to try to find it, but we did. And it, it's still there um, in basically the exact form it was in the 16th century. Um, and so I was able to write that chapter. Um, being there. It was, it was amazing. Uh, and, and various other places in the first half of the book, um, that was true. And then lockdown happened, um, and I didn't get to go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, it was really funny. I remember seeing a tweet, um, somebody had, had posted about, you know, historians should never write about places they don't visit. I went, I would have loved to. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so some of the places, uh, in the second half of the book, I've only visited more recently. So Kenilworth, for instance, Kenilworth Castle, which is very important to Robert Dudley's um, story. It's kind of been nice being able to go there after the fact as well. Um, sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm, you know, not a fan of my own work, but <laughs> I, I, in a sense, you know, I, it's, it's like I too am kind of going, wow, the Dudleys, they're amazing. And going to these places um, and, and getting to experience that, it's, it's very, very cool. Mm-hmm. And what was the research process like for this? Was it a lot of just like trying to decipher like the language of the time and these very old letters and trying to figure out, you know, Diary know, entries. Diary entries or, you know, are they being sincere? <laughs> was it kind of difficult to 
parse through that? Or, you know, what was the research process like? I wish I had diary entries. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been amazing. Um, there's there's nothing like that um, from 16th century. Um, diaries aren't really a thing at that point. The closest you get is Edward VI does have something like a journal, but it's very, uh, today I went here, this person was executed, <laughs> I went to bed. Um, <laughs> you don't get this sense of, of emotion much from it um except when he's having a really good time so when he goes to it's actually a dudley wedding um john dudley jr gets married as does robert dudley um he he seems to get really excited um, by a game they play of um beheading a goose (laughs) um he seems to think that's great (laughs) so you don't get much from those sorts of things a lot of it um was letters um and and uh deciphering is is the word uh because the the writing of the time i'm i i'm pretty good at it but still it it stumps me sometimes um and then there's the times it's in latin <laughs> uh which is even more difficult of course um one of the things that was difficult about lockdown was not being able to physically interact with the manuscripts uh, it is an amazing thing to sit there with something that someone, you know, you've spent a lot of time with, um, but who's lost, you know, four or five centuries ago. They sat there and they wrote that. And, and to see the ink on the page and where they made corrections and to get a sense of where they've been hurried or, or even when they're getting emotional, you can sometimes see that in a letter. Um, to be able to to hold that, uh, it's an amazing connection with the past, and and I think very um, sort of motivating. Uh, it, it re-energizes when you start going, "Oh, good lord! <laughs> it's been four and a half years. How is this not over yet?" Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, a lot of the process was was exactly that sort of of work. Uh, I was really lucky to go to a wide variety of, of archives. I think my favorite day um, was at the College of Arms, uh, where I was just me in a room, the archivist in and out, and I was looking at these amazing family trees of the Dudleys, many of them decorated, very ornate. I was looking at scorecards from tournaments, again, some of them decorated, um, contemporary images of, of processions, funeral processions, coronation processions, these sorts of things. Uh, it, it, it's, it's amazing. Um, and some of those images are in the book as well. Um, but it's, it's amazing, uh, how much is, is preserved. So obviously we know that the Tudors had a big, like lasting impact on a lot of what the world even looks like today, specifically in things like between, you know, Catherine and Anne entirely changing like the religion of a country. Did the Dudleys have a lasting impact that we might not know about? Like, what is something that they definitely had their hand in the pot that now still exists because of them? A, a huge amount, actually. Um, uh, this is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about um, because, you know, there's there's the drama of the story, but you you want to, as a historian, say, well, this matters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, I mean, there's, there's a variety of things. Uh, the, the the majesty, the the magnificence that we think of with with Henry VIII, uh, that to a large part came about because Edmund Dudley did so much work collecting money for his father and and then leaving that for for his son. Um, 
uh, he he single-handedly raised crown revenue by over half in less than four years, right? Like huge amounts of money, which Henry VIII then spent on all his his jewelry and, and his outfits and <laughs> his warfare and his pageants and all of those things that we associate with him um, today. Uh, John Dudley as well um, played a very important role in the development of the English Navy. Uh, so he was Lord Admiral uh, under in the final years of the reign of Henry VIII. And whereas previously Lord Admiral's, well, it's, it had kind of been a ceremonial role. So for instance, at one point, Henry VIII gave it to his bastard son, who was six. Um, so he didn't do a lot with it. <laughs> uh, whereas John Dudley came in and he actually made a lot of, of really fundamental changes to the organizational structure of the Navy, increased um, the administration and the bureaucracy, um, as well as uh, changing how the ships were built, uh, adding in. So um, we associate uh, the English Navy with piracy under Elizabeth, for instance. Um, those letters of mark that sort of legitimate piracy, that was that was under John Dudley's admiralty. Um, a huge uh, naval battle called the Battle of the Solent, in, in which the Mary Rose goes down. Um, if, if anyone is in the UK or visited the UK, the Mary Rose, amazing exhibition. Uh, they've managed to pull it up some 400 years later. Uh, that was that was John Dudley. Um, he was he was Lord Admiral and was almost on the Mary Rose when it went down. So there's all of these things. They 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 were incredibly important. Um, Robert Dudley was a great uh, patron of art. Um, he had a huge art collection, uh, one of the biggest in in the country, if not the biggest. Uh, and of course, uh, the reputation of Elizabeth as Virgin Queen um, is down to whether or not Robert did or didn't. <laughs> and the <laughs> fact that they they were unable, really, there were so many barriers to them marrying, may have been what stopped Elizabeth from marrying anyone else. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm so happy that you have written this book because I, again, had never heard of this family and they are, I mean, you write about three generations that have absolutely affected the world that we live in right now, which is incredible. Um, so, you know, I know the book came out, I believe on March 7th. Um, so where can people find the book? Where can people find you and maybe any future writings you might do? <laughs> Yeah, so the book, um, if you're in North America, it's at your standard Amazon, Barnes & Noble type thing. Um, I think it's in Canada. It's at um, Indigo, Chapters Indigo. Um, but you can also make sure to order it from your local bookstore, support your local independent bookstores, go and ask for it. I'm sure they'll order it in for you. Uh, and same with same within the UK. Um, it's at your, your your standard big bookstores as well as well as your little ones and it's available in paperback in the UK as well also there's an amazing audible uh recording so if you're into your audio audiobooks um the the actress the voice actress who did it is really really good you can find me online uh joannepaul.com uh and I'm on twitter which is joanne underscore paul underscore instagram dr joanne paul uh and I don't do tiktok because I'm too old uh, so, same <laughs> standard ones there. I am working on another project. I actually just hit the halfway point. 
with it, but I'm not allowed to say what it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can tell us when you're allowed. It'll be yeah. like that. We'll have a gender reveal yeah. party yeah. for your book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again for coming on. We hope everybody goes out and learns about the Dudley family. And um, yeah, thank you again. This is this is great. Yes. Everybody oh, always enjoys you. new tutor literature. Yes. We always <laughs> we need more. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me and cheers. <laughs> yes, cheers.